Welcome or welcome back. I'm Sonia Looney and this is my podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the show today. This podcast is about cultivating your healthiest body and your healthiest mind where I have the privilege to have conversations with inspiring and brilliant people around the world in the areas of health, wellness, and mindset. This is episode 15, and here's a snippet from this week's guest. Is to not put a new forkful in your mouth until you've already fully chewed and swallowed what's there. Mm-hmm. And that sounds obvious, but if you watch people eat and you watch yourself eat, we often chew, chew, swallow a little bit, still have food in our mouth, add another forkful. Today's guest is a plant-based dietitian named Matt Resigno, and I actually met him on Twitter. I started following him, and I was really enjoying his tweets, and he very generously said that he would come on my podcast and talk about what's really near and dear to me, plant-based nutrition. One of the things I love about Matt is he's very approachable and very down to earth. So I think that you'll find in this conversation, we talk about food, our relationship with food, what you're supposed to eat as a plant-based athlete, and some of the barriers for changing your diet. He has some really good advice if you just want to add in more fruits and vegetables if you don't want to go 100% plant-based. And he talks about his new clinic called Nutrinic. It's an amazing resource because, well, number one, it's in Pasadena, California, but people can go there if they have diabetes or pre-diabetes and they're trying to prevent diseases or maybe they're trying to treat diseases with diet. But he also will talk with people that are maybe just transitioning their diet or maybe you're eating a plant-based diet and you feel a little bit off. He's a really great resource for that and you can actually set up video chats with him and he's been... Man, he's been a vegan for 20 years, and he's done all these crazy things as an athlete, including the hardest Ironman on the planet called Norseman, which we actually heard James Lawrence talk about in episode 13, and Vineman, and he's done crazy long bike rides and ultra running. So the guy has done everything, and he's done it on a plant-based diet as well. He talks about what you should eat before a workout, what you should eat during and after your workout, And he also has a very open mind and open communication about the fact that some people thrive on a high-fat diet, some don't. Some people have seen benefits eating different types of diets, and he talks about those. I think that he's a really fun person to listen to because he's really passionate about what he does. I just got to get him to come up here to British Columbia so I can take him out on a mountain bike ride and continue to pick his brain. So let's get into this conversation and hit the nail on the head of how to eat a plant-based diet. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to speak with you today. How are things in LA today? Good. It's been warm. You know, we're used to like perfect temperatures and it's been like a little warmer than perfect. You know, if I had to complain about anything, it would be that. (laughs) That's a good thing to, that's a good problem to have. (laughs) It really is. Very few people in the world would have any pity for me about it, I think. (laughs) You got that right. There are some people over (laughs) the winter who I follow who live in that area, and they're like, oh, it's so cold here. And meanwhile, (laughs) I'm in BC, and I can't even ride my bike outside. It's like, you don't know cold. (laughs) I know. I know. We're spoiled. (laughs) But that's good. I mean, people that live in Southern California, they made that choice, and good for them. You know, that's awesome. And I pay for it with my rent price. There you go. But you guys (laughs) have a really great 
plant-based community down there, right? Yeah, I think so. There, there's a lot of people. And, and the issue with Southern California, it feels like it's an entire country, right? And there's just so many people and so many things happening. It's almost like when you go to a smaller city, it's like if there's one thing, everyone goes to the one thing. But here you have 15 things. <laughs> yeah. And then you get decision fatigue trying to figure out where to even go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I am often have decision fatigue. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I really want to come down there and just do like a vegan food tour. My husband and I went to New York City earlier, like in May, and we just went around and ate at all the amazing restaurants. And I've heard so many good things about the restaurants where you are. Yeah, we're absolutely spoiled. It's amazing. And it's amazing to see how much has changed in the last five years or so. I think really the quality has gone up, you know, not just the number of options, but the quality of food. And that's really exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. So let's go back a little bit. So you have your, is it a master's as a dietitian? So I have a master's in public health nutrition. Okay, cool. And so a lot of people who do graduate work after finishing a dietitian program um, do an MS, which is a master's of science. So they do mm-hmm. some sort of research, but a public health degree is a very practical degree. Mm-hmm. And so you learn like, you know, not only epidemiology and that stuff, but also like a lot of educational theory, a lot of social theory and, and sort of how to implement the nutritional science that you learned in undergrad. Cool. And there's people that refer to themselves as nutritionists and people who refer to themselves as dietitians. So what's the difference? <laughs> I like to say that a dietitian is the only professional credential, right? So I have to have an undergrad degree. I have to take an exam. I have to do almost a thousand hours of work, supervised work. And I have to do continuing education in order to call myself an RD. Mm-hmm. And so that's the big difference. You know, most people who call themselves nutritionists have only online training. Mm-hmm. Right? They took an online class somewhere and they call themselves a nutritionist. And most people don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, only recently speaking with a few different dietitians that I even noticed that they were calling themselves different things. And I had mistakenly been calling dietitians nutritionists because I didn't know that there was a difference. Right. And, and we say that all dietitians are nutritionists, but not all nutritionists are dietitians. Right. It's like one uh, of those corollaries. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting to be like, you know, I grew up as like anti-authority person and veganism is very anti-authority in a way. But then to say, look, I'm actually formally trained in this. There's a big difference, you know, and in LA, it's funny because you get a lot of quote nutritionists who do events and do vegan events. And Mm -hmm. honestly, they don't have the science background. So did you change your diet before you went to school to become a dietitian? Yeah, I mean, I was young and uh, didn't know what I wanted to study. My parents didn't go to college, so I had no pressure. Didn't even know if I was going to go. And uh, it just seemed like a useful thing to study. I didn't know what a dietitian was. I just thought, hey, I'm vegan. I went vegan at a young age. I was 17. You know, it was the mid-90s. And uh, thought, hey, I want to study something useful. So I jumped right into it. had no idea what I was getting into. And what was the impetus for you to change your diet when you were 17? You know, I got into, I always loved animals. You know, even as a kid and I, I, you know, only child, grew up with a dog and I always loved animals. I tried to be vegetarian a couple times off and on and it was hard in my Italian-American family. (laughs) And then I learned about this thing called veganism and it just, it blew me away. I mean, I learned about it through music, through punk Mm -hmm. music. Wow. And, uh, And it was really sort of intertwined with, you know, social justice. And so that's the veganism that I learned about early on. And um, it just really clicked. You know, 17, you're, you're making that transition. 
you know, and um, I just went in. I mean, I went from, I was vegetarian only a few months, you know, within a, six months of eating McDonald's, I was vegan trying to figure out what the heck to do with tofu. Yeah. And especially in that time, there wasn't the wealth of knowledge that there is today and how to do it in a healthful way. Right. Right. And just the restaurants and what was, you know, the amount of, what's the word here? You had to give up quite a lot. <laughs> you know, you had to be really committed to stick to it for sure. Yeah. So you, so you go to school, you're in Loma Linda, right? For school. Well, I did undergrad in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I grew up about an hour outside New York City and I went to uh, the local state school. I went to Penn State University. You know, it's traditional land grant university, very old school, not vegan friendly. But I'm really thankful because I got a tremendous nutrition degree. You know, my degree paralleled pre-med. So you learn all the science and physiology that builds this base of nutritional science. So I had to deal with a lot of dairy and meat stuff, you know, as part of the education. But it was well worth it to learn the science. Yeah, and even the food pyramid has evolved since then, hasn't it? Mm -hmm, with my plate and whatnot. You know, this comes up a lot about bias, right? When I'm criticized as being a dietitian and being formally trained, people say, oh, it's, you know, the USDA is terrible and all this, but we're taught to interpret the science, right? right? And so learning that is what is helpful to be able to look through just the headlines of things. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for people, not only with diet, but just about lots of different things in life is you hear oh, you should do this, like this is healthy for you, or, the, or they'll read it in a magazine. And it's really hard to sift through all of the different information and decide what is actually relevant. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks, and you know, vegans make this mistake too, they just don't understand how much research is out there, because they're only seeing the stuff that's filtered through the plant-based MDs or RDs. They don't realize there's like an entire journal just on magnesium that publishes monthly about only magnesium, right? There are literally thousands of studies that come out every month, and we only hear of one or two. Mm -hmm. That's what's difficult. And, you know, not only looking at the science, but then looking at how the studies are done, and there's just so many complications in nutritional science. That's why I'm so skeptical, and that's why I'm very careful in my language with how I promote, you know, nutrition and veganism. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you were going to school, and then you were a vegan, mm -hmm. but had you realized that there was all of these major health benefits to eating that way? You know, there wasn't a lot. There was Ornish was doing stuff. You know, he had already published, you know, his heart disease reversal program. You know, Esselstyn, there was a little bit about, I think, Campbell had been in the world. Like, you knew he existed and stuff. And people like me could find his stuff and reference it. But what I really sort of clung to then, and I still use today, is just this idea that eating more plant foods is better. And that evidence has been strong for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, just the, simply the benefit of eating more beans. And, and anyone, even if you're old school dietitian, you know, funded by the meat or dairy industry, you would say, yeah, eating beans is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's important just for people to, even if they don't want to 100% change their diet, everybody wants to be healthier. Like, it's just right. hard to execute that sometimes. So just adding in healthy foods, which are plant-based foods, it sometimes mm -hmm. eliminates some of the other things just naturally because there's only so much you can eat in a day. Right, right. It displaces. And, and, and that's a discussion that we have about what is the benefit of eating plant-based? Is it the food that you've displaced or the food that you are now eating? And those are two different things, right? 
And so is it more that your the meat was bad or that what you replaced it with is good? <laughs> yeah. Right? Two different things and difficult to study that. And, and I always say, instead of disparaging meat and dairy, which sure, there's plenty of things that you can say about it, it's saying, well, look how good this other food is. That's indisputable. Yeah, and that's a really positive lens to look at nutrition with, because if you're always scanning for the negative and not really focusing on the positive, then your motivation might change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when I give talks, there's something that I say, like I show that you know, all these organizations do say, hey, to prevent diabetes, to prevent heart disease, you should make half your plate, you know, non-starchy vegetables. You know, you should Mm -hmm. eat three servings of legumes a day. Like they're saying this and I'm saying, look, veganism isn't that different. (laughs) Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, So I love that you went to school and got your master's in Loba Linda because that's one of the blue zones where people live past age 100. Mm -hmm. So how did that, did that come into play at all when you were in school? Yeah, so I picked Loma Linda because of their plant-based approach. You know, there's a huge thousand-page medical book called Shills, right? And it's a medical nutrition book. And the chapter on nutrition was written by the dean at Loma Linda University. Hmm. Sorry, the chapter on vegetarianism. And so I was like, what is this school? And then I looked them up, and I didn't know about Adventists, and I learned all about it. And they had just the program for me. It just worked out perfectly. And um, and going there was a big experience. You know, I moved to California at 22 years old. Yeah. And I thought that it would be a whole program full of, like, people like me who are really excited about veganism. But it wasn't. For them, it's just a way of life. And they're lacto-ovo. They're not strictly vegan. Mm-hmm. And so that is an important distinction. But what I really, really learned there was all this public health stuff because um, Loma Linda is very diverse. I mean, there's only 2,000 students and something like 75 countries were represented. Wow. And so that was a really cool experience to me. It's just that, you know, in my class, I might be the only white male. And there's a physician from Croatia. And let's see who else. There was a a physician from Egypt who was sent there to learn about preventative medicine, right? There's somebody who grew up in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, who's now studying public health. And so I suddenly had all of these other influences and all these other people talking about their experience. And that was really taught me a lot. Yeah, that'd be really impactful to see that, hey, it's not just our bubble over here that is doing this with their life and focusing on preventative medicine and lifestyle medicine. It's happening all around the world. Right, absolutely. And Seventh-day Adventists, you know, have, have done a really good job about that. I'm not an Adventist myself, and that was interesting because people would say, oh, wow, you're vegan? You must be really Adventist. And then I would say, no, actually, I'm not at all. And then they were just very confused also that I don't drink, right? Because most Adventists are vegetarian and don't drink. So I was just such a confusion to most of them. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, what the work that they do around the world for prevention is really incredible. Opening up clinics and teaching about actual nutrition in you know, preventing diabetes and all of this. So that was such a cool experience. Awesome. And yeah, you just recently opened your own clinic. When was that? And tell us about your clinic. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a new business venture called Nutrinic, which, you know, nutrition clinic, and it's just one other business partner and I. And what we're doing is developing a program to treat prediabetes. 
right? And it started as using plant-based diets in the prevention of cardiovascular disease. You know, we just opened up in December of last year, so it's still very new. And what we're doing is looking at the ways that you can help people use plant-based diets to prevent later cardiovascular diseases. And what we decided to do is focus on pre-diabetes, mm-hmm. right? For a lot of older folks, you know, not necessarily that old, right? That's their first real diagnosis related to this potentially life-threatening disease, right? And a lot of physicians will say, okay, you have pre-diabetes, just watch what you eat, and we'll keep an eye on it. See you next year, right? But it's still an opportunity to help at that point to change their diet so that they do not develop diabetes. And so we're going to work with physicians to put people through a program where they learn to change their diet and incorporate more plant foods. That's so cool. Like, I think that a lot of people don't realize that pre-diabetics, it's not just sugar and starchy things that cause diabetes or in people that are predisposed to this. Like my grandma was mm-hmm. actually pre-diabetic or she still is. And she would always avoid eating French fries or anything with sugar in it because she thought that that's going to spike her insulin. But right. what I've learned, and, and hopefully you can elaborate on this because I'm not an expert, but meat actually causes the biggest spikes in insulin. Yeah, it's a lot of factors, right? And, you know, you're diagnosed with prediabetes, which means your fasting blood glucose is over 100, you know, and diabetes is diagnosed at over 129, right? And so you haven't hit that 129 number, but you're over 100. So it's like, okay, this is happening, right? And what people don't realize is it's been decades of poor diet that has led them to that point. Right. And it has to do with not only insulin spike, but also insulin resistance and the fat that's in the cell. Right. And that fat in the cell makes it harder to uptake the insulin with the glucose. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you were saying that the fat, you were talking about the fat in the cell. Right. So what happens is you, over decades of a bad diet, you know, the fat accumulates in the cell and it makes it more difficult for the insulin to meet the insulin receptor, Mm -hmm. right? And so your pancreas says, okay, the blood glucose is too high. Let's put out more insulin. Mm -hmm. And then it's putting out more and more insulin to try to resolve this problem. But it's really an issue of the insulin sensitivity at the receptor. Mm. And for a lot of people, just losing 5 to 10% of their body weight, because, you know, the majority of folks who are diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes are overweight, just like a 5% loss in body fat can help improve insulin sensitivity. And that goes along with, so plant-based diets can help with the weight loss, but then also eating more fiber foods, which is only found in plants, right? Eating more of these phytochemical foods, predominantly found in plants, can help improve insulin sensitivity. So it's not about the spike as much as it's about how much insulin and glucose can be taken up into the cells. Okay. And if people have family members or maybe they themselves are pre-diabetic listening to this podcast, where's a good place for them to get started if they want to start making changes? Really simply, you know, and this is what I tell like Uber drivers or whoever they find out what I'm doing, you know, what I do for a living is honestly, if people could eat three half cup servings of legumes a day, you would see tremendous improvements in health, right? Because you're getting the fiber which does reduce the insulin spike because it's slowing the gastric emptying of food, mm-hmm. right? And so the glucose is being put into your bloodstream slower, right? Mm-hmm. And then that fiber and those phytochemicals can also help to improve insulin sensitivity. 
So like really like that is one of the best things that you could do is just eat more beans, right? You have to be careful. You don't want them like soaked in oil and, you know, covered in cheese and all those things. It could, you know. <laughs> That doesn't help the situation as much, but really just eating more beans could have tremendous, you know, health implications in a, in a good way, you know. And so I always looked at PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. They have a 21-day program. Plant-Based on a Budget is a great website and Facebook page to get more of these recipes. And I think we really could see improvements if someone has prediabetes or diabetes just by doing like Meatless Monday, really. Mm-hmm by making sure that they replace those meat with actual plant foods. Yeah, I think that it's really important to be able to break down the barriers that people have to adding in more healthy fruits, vegetables, and legumes into their diet. And the biggest mm-hmm. thing that people tell me when they are adding beans into their diet is they say, oh, well, it gives me too much gas or I get bloated. Mm-hmm. Why is that? For me personally, like there's certain types of beans that will cause more gas than other types of beans. But Mm -hmm. What can we do to reduce that? That way that can't be a barrier for people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Eating more fiber, if your body isn't used to it, can definitely cause gastric gastric distress. Absolutely. So one would be incorporate it slowly. Mm -hmm. You know, don't eat an entire can of beans, right? (laughs) Your Your average American gets 14 grams of fiber in a day. The recommendations are between 25 and 35 grams per day. A vegan like you or I who's pretty active probably eats 25 grams in a meal. Right, exactly. You know, and so that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And so people need to, you know, be mindful of how much they're adding, you know, and to do it slowly. And then something that I, I just learned, and I can't believe I hadn't thought of this earlier, is that one of the reasons that beans cause gas is because people don't chew them all the way. Mm. So, right, like you eat a piece of meat, it feels you know, rubbery and, it, and you want to break it down and you feel your teeth breaking it down, right? You're like ripping the pieces. But with beans, they're generally smooth. And most people eat way too fast and don't chew their food enough. And so they're swallowing whole beans. <laughs> and so those whole beans are difficult to digest, right? And so just chewing beans more can help. Uh, you know, a way to do that if eating slower is a challenge is looking at things like hummus and refried beans because they're already broken down, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, mashing them, that can help as well. But really, honestly, if for any listeners, if beans are giving you issues, chew them. Chew them all the way. <laughs> yeah, especially lentils. Like, I was at a restaurant, it was a while ago, but they had, it was great because they had added a vegan plate because my, it wasn't just because of my husband and I, but we always went there. And people don't realize when you go out to eat, you can actually ask the chef to make you something special that's not on the menu. And they love doing it, and it's often really good. And then people at the table who ordered off the regular menu actually wish that they could eat what you got. (laughs) But this beautiful lentil ragu came out, and it had so much flavor. And I was so hungry, and I wolfed it down. I probably didn't (laughs) chew. And that night, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't even sleep. This is horrible. But so then we actually realized, hey, maybe we didn't chew our food. So we right. went back again and got the same thing, which is now actually on the menu full time, which is great. Great. And Congrats. chewed it and then no problems. So that's mm-hmm. a really good point. <laughs> yeah. It, all of us eat so fast and, and just slowing down. And when I work with you know weight loss clients, it's really one of the things. It's like, look, if you enjoy eating, why are you rushing it? Enjoy yeah. it. Right? Like sometimes we want eating to take, like we get seconds because we want to continue to eat. Because we like it. Mm -hmm. And so what if you could make that first bowl extend to the same amount of time it would take you to eat two bowls? 
then you have the same amount of enjoyment by time, right? Mm-hmm. But you've eaten half the amount of calories. That's win-win, right? You still get to eat the same foods, just you're eating slower so that you eat less. Yeah, too you know, that's like a simple thing people could do and chew slower. So, you know, I'll give you here one of my tips that I give to people, and maybe this will help others, is to not put a new forkful in your mouth until you've already fully chewed and swallowed what's there. Mm-hmm. And that sounds obvious, but if you watch people eat and you watch yourself eat, we often chew, chew, swallow a little bit, still have food in our mouth, add another forkful. Chew. So it's this like unending cycle of food into the mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Just Finish chewing, swallow, and then if you want a real challenge, wait five seconds before you take another forkful, and it'll seem like an eternity, right? And so doing one of those two things can really help slow you down. Yeah, and I also think one of the biggest challenges, and I'm personally guilty of this myself, is that we are in a rush, like we're so busy in our day that we don't actually spend time to enjoy our meal. So like we take our food mm-hmm. and eat at our mm-hmm. desk or we eat in the car and you're just in such a rush throughout your day that you don't actually pause to enjoy the experience of eating. And there's this great, right. so, so Headspace actually has meditation on airplanes now. And Whoa. and I was flying to Australia and I thought, I'll just listen to all these to see what the advice is because there's great little tidbits. And one of them was about eating. And Mm -hmm. it said, if you're having trouble slowing down or sitting down with your meal and being intentional about eating and you're like on your phone or whatever, is to try and and think about where the food came from, who grew it, what their experience was, and it helps you connect with your food in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. We eat so much passively, right? It's like the passive calories that are a concern. Like you're bored and you're just at your desk and you're just eating something just to do it. And I know it. I do it too. You know, I'm always looking for a break from sitting in front of the computer. So I'm like, oh, I'll see what I should get to eat, you know? And so I have to be careful about what I can have around, you know? Right. As I know Matt, Matt Frazier from No Meat Athlete talks about this a lot, that motivation is finite, you know? Mm-hmm. We only have so much. And so I can't keep a lot of snack foods around because I don't have the, like, motivation to avoid it because mm-hmm. I'll just go up and eat it and then I'll go get another one and then I'll go get another one until it's gone. So I just have to keep that stuff away. You know, and it's a lot of the passive consumption of food that can be a problem. So I agree. It's just like, you know, I'm not religious, but a lot of religions, before they eat, they take a moment, right? Mm -hmm. To either pray or to be thankful or whatever it is. And that's really smart because you kind of reset. Now I'm doing this other activity, you know? Mm. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's a really good point. So let's get into athletes because there's lots of athletes that listen to this podcast from the weekend warriors to all the way to elite athletes. And a big concern, of course, is how your macronutrient breakdown as an athlete, how many calories you need. And mm-hmm. my personal concern when I changed my diet, it was mid-season, was what if I get weak? What if I don't recover? I don't actually know how much I'm supposed to be eating. Is it different? So what would you recommend as a starting point for athletes looking to change their diet? Yeah, definitely. And and this is challenging. You know, I was on Rich Roll's podcast and afterwards I was getting contacted by all these folks that are like, didn't change their diet until they were in their 40s or 50s. And they were all very active, sort of like masters, mountain bike racers and things. And a lot of them, you know, just said, oh my God, I'm so hungry all the time. You know, and I lost weight and that was great, but now I just can't keep weight on. What do I do? And the part of that is when you switch to plant-based foods, you're getting more volume and fewer calories, which is why weight loss is often associated with vegetarians and vegan diets. But then if you have a high caloric need, that can be a problem. 
Mm-hmm. And so that is something to think about for sure. And so what I usually do with folks is I say, okay, look, what are you eating already? And let's change it from there. And you, if, you know, if you love chicken and broccoli or rice with a sauce, you can't just pull the chicken out, right? Because right. <laughs> you're taking out a huge chunk of the calories and that mm-hmm. needs to be replaced somehow. Mm-hmm. And so an easy thing to do would find some, you know, vegan chicken strips, right? And mm-hmm. throw that in and replace it that mm-hmm. way. And then back to the beans, it's like, can you do tofu? Can you do some sort of bean patty? Can you replace that sort of protein-rich food that helps to fill you up and helps you get the calories? You know, that's an important thing, mm-hmm. you know. And then on the other extent of that is some folks who are really influenced by raw think that they can eat whatever they want if they're not eating animal products. And that's mm-hmm. not true either. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a client that was doing like 2,500 calorie smoothies twice a day and didn't understand why he couldn't lose weight. And it's like, okay, let's back off the like half a jar of peanut butter, 10 banana smoothies. Like you can't do those, right? And so, you know, it's finding that balance in there with making sure you're just simply getting enough calories. You know, and I say to people, they're like, oh, I had an apple for a snack, but I was still hungry. And I say, well, can you have three apples? Can you put some peanut butter on that apple? You have to replace those calories. And I think a lot of people, a lot of athletes who switch just simply aren't eating enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the comment of people being hungry all day is a a comment that I've gotten from people quite a bit whenever they ask me about their diet. So, but whenever they add in calories, should they be adding in things like nuts that are high fat and high calorie or like what should they be actually adding in? You know, what I like to do is just expand what they're already eating. Nuts and seeds are a great way to increase calories, but they are higher in fat. And so you have to kind of balance those percentages a little bit, depending on your own experience and needs. Some people thrive on a high fat diet, right? Mm -hmm. And for some people, it'll be too much. You know, they're like, oh my God, I'm starving and I have a ride coming up. I'm going to eat 500 calories of peanuts. And that's, well, that might not be the best fuel for you, you know, if you're not Mm -hmm. used to eating higher fat. And so it's expanding what you're already doing and also having someone you know who does this is just so helpful, Mm -hmm. right? Because we say big salad, eat a big salad. But if the only salad you've ever eaten is the tiny side salad at a restaurant, you have no idea what a big salad really is. Right. It's all subjective. We only have our own experience. I eat these gigantic salads. And people have seen me speak have heard the story where I did Ironman in Northern California with a friend and he was raw vegan at the time. And the next day, you know, we're starving, of course. And I, my cousin had organized some family members and people to come over. And my raw vegan friend, um, there's like eight of us, okay? And so my raw vegan friend, you know, we're all cooking and getting ready to eat lunch with everyone. And he had this big salad bowl and he was chopping vegetables and adding leafy greens and things. And my other cousin came over and said, hey, that's a lot of salad. There's only eight of us. And he said, <laughs> he said no, this is just for me. I'm not sharing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so what, you know, my cousin's like Northern California, like vegetarian-ish. She's not a total stranger yeah, to this, you amazing. know, lifestyle. And to her, it was too much for eight people. And it was his salad. Yeah. And so there's huge differences in like what we think of as too much or big. And so that's something, you know, can you eat a little more of what you're already eating? You might need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that there's something to be said about the amount of fat in your diet. There's a lot of different schools of thought within the plant-based community as to how much fat you should be consuming. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned that some people are very sensitive to a high fat diet. And I am one of those people. If I eat a high fat diet, I gain weight like crazy, even if it's all whole food, plant-based foods. Like, 
If I'm putting too much almond butter, eating too much nuts, like boom, weight gain. And there's other Mm. people that can eat tons of that stuff and they are like still losing weight. So, I mean, why is that? You know, I don't know. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of nonsense with paleo and with keto for sure. But on the other hand is, see, I'm making no friends, right? I'm not going to be friends with those folks. Then we're going to say next, I'm going to make no friends with the vegans, um, (laughs) is they are really challenging what we know about sports nutrition. Mm -hmm. And there are some ultra runners that are thriving on very high fat diets and they're Mm -hmm. doing it, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's incredible. And that's changing what we know about sports nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for that. It should be challenged, right? All science is constantly evolving. And so, you know, what I said on a podcast five years ago might not be true anymore, right? (laughs) Because the evidence just shifts, right? And there are no absolutes, and it's something to really keep in mind, you know, and, and especially within our community about disease prevention. It's just like hammered, low fat, low fat, low fat, low fat. Well, there's some evidence that it doesn't have to be very low fat. You know, Walter Willett at Harvard, he says, if you're eating mostly plants, yeah, eat fat. You know, if you're, if you're maintaining a healthy body weight, you can eat 30 to 35% of your calories from fats and be healthy. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are no absolutes with this. Yeah, I think it's important for people to adopt it to themselves to say, this is what's working for me. This is the ratio where I personally feel the best and am thriving. And that's going to be different for every single person. So it's really hard whenever people are trying to change their diet and they are trying to eat exactly what somebody else is eating because there's a lot of variables in there where you can't actually just eat exactly what somebody else is eating. Right. Right. And we don't know why different things work for different people. And I mean, that's what's beautiful about research is you have a large number of people so that you can sort of see what works for most and how. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, for really, it's just like it needs to be figured out on an individual level. You know, we Mm -hmm. can give general recommendations, but it's hard to say like only this. I, I have friends who are raw vegans, right? And they totally excel on it. But I think that they could excel on a Twinkie diet. You know, I don't think it matters for them. Yeah. Yeah, something that's kind of been challenging me a little bit of things that I've read is my go-to before exercise would be two pieces of sprouted whole wheat bread, like the Silver Hill squirrely bread is what I really like, or like it's similar to the Ezekiel bread. So you're getting seven grams of fiber per piece of bread with almond butter and honey. And I know honey is not vegan and I like honey. So I'm just putting that out there. I've actually been excluded from some of the things in the vegan community because I eat honey, which I think is kind of funny. Like, I know it's not funny for them, but I find it funny yeah. and I'm not making any friends saying that. But <laughs> it's like I eat a plant based diet. I don't call myself a vegan because of that. Like, that's one of the reasons. But however, I've been reading some stuff and consulting with some people say- telling me I should not be eating that much fiber right before a workout. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you shed your light on that? Yeah, definitely. I've seen fiber be problematic for runners primarily. Mm-hmm. And a lot of ultra runners I've worked with, I way cut down their fiber leading into a race, mm-hmm. which is counterintuitive. But it's like, look, minimize the vegetables, white rice, <laughs> yeah. some processed foods, just because that having too much fiber can cause some disruption, right? Mm -hmm. It can have you, you know, having to do number two when you don't want to, or when it can be very inconvenient. (laughs) And so that is something to keep in mind. And I think for on the bike or during activity and post activity, we have some really good guidelines for what people should be eating, right? The number of calories, the percentage of carbohydrate, protein, we have good numbers on that. Mm -hmm. But pre-workout, I think is needs 
100% be personalized. Mm-hmm. You know, and it really does. And for me, because we have glycogen storage, and people who are really fit can do their workout on their glycogen storage. Mm-hmm. I can almost gauge my fitness by the type of workout I can do without eating. Wow. You know, and I, when I was really fit, which I'm not now, <laughs> I could wake up and do 60 miles without eating breakfast. You know, I would eat a bar or a banana or something while I was out there, but I didn't need to eat food. I had the glycogen storage, you know, so I could just get up and go and just eat something in a couple hours when I got hungry while riding. And so that's something that is really, really just personal for sure. Uh, Is it glycogen storage or is it the ability to use fat as your primary fuel source on those rides? I think it could be both. I mean, people do, you know, fasted workouts in order to increase their body's ability to use the fat storage, definitely. But then athletes do increase their glycogen storage, right? You can Mm. double your glycogen storage just by eating after you work out consistently. Mm. You know, and the time I'm thinking of is like, I didn't have a whole lot of fat storage. So Mm -hmm. it was predominantly using using glycogen and then probably being able to burn some of the fat that I did have too. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that the I've never actually done the depletion rides. And I've been thinking about trying it. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that that also increases your ability to store more glycogen. Yeah, it's mostly, you know, we deplete naturally, right? Even if you're not really trying to, if you do a three hour workout, your glycogen is going to be depleted. Mm -hmm. And then if you eat afterwards, you're going to replace that glycogen. And you know, your body knows says, hold, hold up, that was hard. We ran out of energy. Let's hold on to some of this for next time. Mm-hmm. You know, and there definitely is something to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I definitely want to learn more about that and do some experimenting. But I've kind of everything I've been doing has been working for me. But I'm always looking for that mm-hmm. extra one percent because it, that does matter at where I'm at in my career as an athlete. Right, right, and that's <laughs> where I'm. You know, I don't work with a lot of professional athletes, and for me, my experience—I mean, my experience in any athletic endeavors has been pretty unique. You know, mm-hmm. I've never taken training super seriously. I've never really made major changes to my diet. You know, I didn't try to alter. I didn't try to do high fat. I didn't try to do depletion stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to how all of that would work. But I think I'm one of those people that can do most of these things, and my body adjusts. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have some very factual information about what to eat while you're on your bike or run Mm -hmm. or whatever and afterwards. So as a vegan or a plant-based athlete, what should you be eating during and after the ride? So for most people, they can do their workout without eating anything, right? Mm -hmm. It's like hour, hour and a half, even two hours. You know, you don't need to eat. And then when it gets beyond that is when you need to consume some calories. And the recommendations are usually between 100 and 250 calories an hour. Mm -hmm. And again, that is a bit personalized. You know, as I'm training and I'm building up, I need to eat a little bit more. But then once I'm pretty fit, I like to, I gravitate more toward the lower number, Mm -hmm. you know. And so, and those calories should be predominantly carbohydrate. But then as that workout gets even longer, then fat can be utilized. Like if you're getting on more than eight to 10 hours, eating some fat can be utilized there. But then also you are slowing down, right? You can only exert at a high level for so many hours. Mm -hmm. And then once that exertion comes down a little bit, your ability to use fat as fuel becomes a little easier. Yeah, I think that's interesting because there's a lot of different bars that you can get to take on the ride because it's or or the run or whatever sport you're doing because it's convenient Mm -hmm. and it's high calorie. Mm 
But a lot of times those bars are very high fat. So you might not actually be using those calories in the moment if mm -hmm. you're if you're needing to put in sugar. Right. And for people who are newer to long distance stuff, who you know want to fixate on percentages and carbohydrates, you know what I tell them is what becomes most important in that moment, you know when it's midnight and you've already run 70 miles and you have 30 more to go, like what's most important is what can you get down? Mm -hmm. You know, you might have made a bottle that you put in your bag that is the absolute perfect ratio, but the smell of it makes you sick, right? Because you thought you wanted orange flavor and now it's disgusting because you've had orange flavor everything all day. It's like, what can you eat? That's really what is most important. Yeah, that's definitely been a big part. When I did 24-hour world championships, it's like at night I opted to eat the sugar, like the gel type things for the first eight mm -hmm. hours. And after that, it was whatever was going to sound good because that's what's going to make you get those calories in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I try to I try to let people know. It's like having a diversity of things to eat. And then you learn. After a few nights out there, either running or cycling in, in one's career, you sort of know what it is that you're going to want to eat or not eat. Yeah. So on a day-to-day -day basis, when you finish your workout, like a lot mm -hmm. of people reach for like a recovery drink type of thing. And that's never really been a big thing for me. Like I prefer to eat real food. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if you're a plant-based athlete, what is an optimal or what are some examples of some meals that people can have or even like a smoothie that they could have post-workout? Yeah, what I would do is, you know, Ironman training, I would be really big on fruit with nut butter, right? Because mm -hmm. you're getting those simple carbohydrates, I mean, you're getting the antioxidants that, you know, may help athletes with recovery. And then you're getting some more calories in the form of fat and then also getting the protein in the nut butter. And so that would be one of my favorite things to do is just like two apples with some peanut butter. You know, it's just simple. It's cheap. I can fit it in my bag. It's easy. And then sometimes I'll do when I get home. I'll do just corn tortillas. I heat them up on my gas stove so they get nice and brown, you know, and then I just put peanut butter on them and, and even frozen berries and they defrost quick enough and I just eat that, nice. you know, just to keep it simple, like to get enough calories and calories that are cheap and easy. You know, I've never been big on special bars or drinks. I've, I've never been a smoothie fan really. So mm -hmm. that's just eating these like simple foods, you know, and then occasional bar, you know, and if you're in a bind, you know, pretzels. Mm -hmm. Right. Pretzels are a good one because they have the complex and simple carbohydrates. And then, you know, I'll do if I'm really stuck. Right. You can get from a vending machine pretzels and peanuts. Mm -hmm. You know, you can almost always get pretzels and peanuts. Right. So those have been a big part of what I do. But I usually try to time it with a meal. Like if I have a huge ride in the morning, I try to come home and eat breakfast right away. Or mm. I tend to I do yoga at night and I have a 90-minute class, which is a long time for yoga. Right. So I just try to make sure I can get home and have a quick dinner afterwards. So you mentioned yoga at night and people always wonder, oh, well, should I be eating so late? Like people will just not eat before bedtime, but they might have finished their workout late. So is it okay to be eating food late at night like that? Yeah, I think it is. I really do. You know, it can be something small, but if you're an athlete, the normal health advice doesn't count, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you need 5,000 calories a day. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're getting it at night, it's, it's really not a big deal. I, I think that whole thing about not eating at night is mostly because most folks eat, make bad choices at night because they're mm -hmm. bored and they're sitting in front of the TV, you mm -hmm. know? And that's the problem with eating at night mostly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's really important to, I mean, there's nothing wrong. Like, I don't own a TV and I don't really watch much TV, but a lot Mm -hmm. of people really enjoy that downtime and that relaxation time because having that rest where your mind is somewhere else and you're not using your body, especially as an athlete, is good. Mm -hmm. But it's a good point that you make that just because you're watching your favorite show on Netflix, that doesn't mean that the bag of chips and whatever should come out. Right, right. And, and but we like that stuff. And it's good. And I never want to like shame anyone for doing it. You yeah. know, like one of my favorite things is movie theater popcorn. Yeah, you know, it's terrible for you. But like, <laughs> I always associate movies with eating popcorn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like one of those things. It's like I tend not to I don't eat potato chips really ever. So if I have some popcorn, sometimes it's not that big of a deal. But we just need to be mindful of these things. How many calories are you consuming again, passively? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, and, what type of foods, yeah. and I think being on a super strict diet, like a lot of athletes before a race, I've done this myself. I tighten up the diet so hard, where now I'm not really enjoying the experience of my diet and of my food. And mm-hmm. then you start feeling restricted, and then your relationship with food psychologically starts to change. So, how yeah. would you like? Do you work with people based on their psychological and emotional relationship with food? Yeah, it ends up something that comes up a lot. And often I will be the person who has to like introduce this idea to people who had never really thought about it before. But a lot of us, you know, do emotional eating. You know, one of my colleagues, Taylor Wolfram, writes about this a lot. She's a dietitian based in Chicago. She says she's against dieting, right? Because of the yo-yo effect. And we're like so restrictive. And then well, what happens? The research shows that people then overeat the foods that had been restricted. Mm-hmm. And and that can be a huge problem. And there are folks who I think have unhealthy relationships with food who use veganism as a cover. And I think that's a problem too, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not a topic that I'm, I'm an expert in, but it's one that I, you know, have some familiarity with over. And we do need to think about this. And that's what's, you know, important with this distinction about with veganism, right? People say it's not a diet, like I'm not trying to lose weight. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than that, both in the talking about it in relation to animals and the environment, but also in, you know, the food choices that you make, it is more of a lifestyle than it is like a weight loss diet. Yeah. And I think that's a good distinction. Also going back to what you said about athletes thriving on high fat diets or paleo or whatever, it's like, Mm -hmm. you might be making these gains as an athlete, but what are you doing to your body long-term and choosing to do that, being aware of what you're doing to your body. And some Mm -hmm. people are, are willing to make that trade to say, yeah, like, I might be increasing my risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, like all these all these ways that all these diseases that come up in our culture, but I think that it's important that people know that they're making that choice and that they're willing to bear that opportunity cost for what performance. Right. And that comes up too. Like paleo is very individual focused, right? It's about what is the supposed best thing to do for my performance. And I think folks in that mindset get confused by veganism because they see like vegan Cheez-Its or something, right, that Earth Balance makes. And they're like, that stuff is terrible for you. It's just processed carbohydrate junk food. How could you say this diet is good for you? Mm -hmm. Because they don't understand that there are vegans who their concern is animals. Their concern is the environment. It's not about personal performance. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of paleo people don't understand that because that's not their association with their food preferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they don't eat processed foods, which is a healthy, like people eating just the standard American diet, switching to paleo, 
a lot of them are making positive health gains because they're cutting out a lot of the processed foods and the the high salt mm-hmm. things. And paleo, like we've talked about this in other podcasts, and, and Brenda specifically had done her own bit of research on this, was back in the day, like paleo ate 70 to 80 grams plus of fiber per day because they mm-hmm. had so mm-hmm. much fruit and vegetables in their diet. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's why I always say so-called paleo for sure. But you are right. And that's where... You know, veganism and uh, and paleo do have some overlap mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got rid of refined carbohydrates and refined sugars, you're going to see improvements. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think most people should be eating less of those things <laughs> and they'll see improvements too. You know, and that's why with things like cardiovascular disease and, and type 2 diabetes, you know, it's not just about meat, whether you eat it or not, but about these refined grains, you know, mm-hmm. and refined sugars. And, and, and those are, are a problem for Mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease development. Yeah, and I think going back to this emotional relationship that people have with food, framing, reframing how you talk about food to yourself and to other people will really help if you have a negative relationship with food. Like people talk about, oh, like what's your guilty pleasure? And just saying guilty around eating something that a treat that you might enjoy, (laughs) that's not a positive way to even talk about eating a treat because now you're Mm -hmm. inherently saying, I should feel guilty if I eat this. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, this idea of like cheat days and things and, you know, the folks I work with, they, they see it as being like this totally restrictive diet. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be like we can make these big changes, but then there still is some wiggle room. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's room for a piece of chalk. There's room for movie theater popcorn, you know, that this stuff can fit. It's not these absolutes that some folks tend to put it in. I made these, uh, like I went to this bakery in New York City called Erin McKenna Bakery, mm-hmm. and she had all these awesome vegan baked goods. So I bought her cookbook and I made the donuts out of that cookbook. And <laughs> it was so good. And it was such a delicious treat. And the amazing thing about those donuts was that I didn't feel bad after I ate them. And, and a friend of mine, she doesn't eat a plant-based diet, but she ate those and was like, wow, I actually feel good after I eat these. I'm not having <laughs> like crazy sugar spikes and drops and all this other stuff. So yeah, that's something that I've personally worked on is being able to eat sweet treats and not mm. feel bad about it because I had a very unhealthy emotional relationship with food for a very long time. Right. And our tastes change, you know, so and, and we don't need as much sugar and whatnot. I know this is a, there's a... Um, yeah, Aaron, Aaron McKenna's. I'm having trouble not calling it Baby Cakes anymore because the name changed. But yeah. there's a Baby Cakes in my neighborhood. It's about a mile and a half from my house. So I'm, I'm familiar oh, with dang, it. dang. I need to come visit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently she that that bakery will ship anywhere in the United States overnight mm. if you order. We saw that in the cookbook. We're like, dang it. You know, oh, wow. we don't live in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you're a cyclist and a, a triathlete, right? Well, I do a bit of everything. And my association with that stuff has been more about just it being fun, you know, adventure after adventure. I grew up riding BMX bikes and skateboarding. Cool. And so like pre-X games, just, you know, riding BMX trails and all that stuff. And then that turned into mountain biking and then bike touring. And then from bike touring, I got into double centuries. And then I wanted to run the LA Marathon because it was in my you know neighborhood. And so I started running. And it's just been a very different approach. Like, I don't have that athlete mindset that a lot of folks do. Like, I'm not super type A. But I just thought, hey, doing Vine Man would be fun. Or like, I did, do you know Norseman in, in Norway? Yeah. I was like, yeah, world's hardest 
Iron Man, that sounds fun because you get to jump off a boat to start the race. And so I did that one, you know, and and my association with the stuff is very different. You know, it's like just I see it from like an adventure mindset. Yeah, but I also think that that mindset and that approach towards all of these, like the Norseman is no joke. Like you jump out of that (laughs) boat, it's like at night or it's like dark out, right? And the water is like 50 degrees. Yeah, it's really early in the morning and it's, you know, it's glacier runoff and stuff. And uh, yeah, definitely. And and I, I think that adventure mindset really helps because if little things go wrong, you don't freak out. And, you know, I've done the Furnace Creek 508 a few times and I've also helped with the race a lot. Wow. And so I'll see a cyclist pulled over on the side of the road who's racing and I'll go and talk to them and they're just feeling so dejected because they're not doing what they had imagined they would be doing. And so they just feel so rejected and just like done. And I say, okay, you're two hours behind where you thought you would be. Who cares? Yeah. Can you, do you have time to finish? Absolutely. Are you tired? Yes, of course you are. Did you think you wouldn't be tired? You know, and just being able to help people with this stuff is something I, I like to do a lot. Yeah, um, I bet that's really helpful when people are out on the course, just like, oh, and you help pull them out of their expectations and help them focus on the experience instead of what they think they should be doing. Right. And some people take it well and some people don't take it so well, which is just <laughs> fine. It's like, screw you. I don't care about this. I'll celebrate when I'm done. I just need to tough it out. And I'm like, all right, do your thing, you know? Like um, that Badwater 135-mile ultramarathon is happening right now. And I'm usually out there helping. I've helped mm-hmm. it on that race uh, most of the last 10 years. You know, so I've been watching it closely on the webcast because it's just phenomenal to see those athletes out there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the tyranny of expectations is always a very difficult thing to encounter no matter who you are in your life, like your expectations of yourself and also other people's expectations of you. That can be mm-hmm. really hard and it's just what you choose to focus on. And it sounds like you do an amazing job focusing on the experience and the fun and just going out and doing the best you can on that day. And I think that's a really mm-hmm. important lesson. Like, you don't have to be an elite athlete to have that in your mind. Like, that's a really great crossover for anybody in a job and in their sport. Just working on that is awesome. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of life lessons. The downside of that was I think I did too much and got a bit burned out because it was like 24 hour mountain bike races and Vine Man. And then I'm like, ooh, ultra running seems fun. And then so it, it did kind of turn into a job as far as training goes. And so when it wasn't as fun, I stopped doing it as much. And, mm-hmm. and now it's been a bit of an adventure to get back into it. You don't realize how fit you are until you lose all that fitness. <laughs> yeah, but part of the fun is building it back up again. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because you start seeing those gains, like when people get injured in sport, I always like, Mm -hmm. and I've had my fair share of injuries and time off of sport. And the gains that you make are very obvious gains. Whereas if you're really fit, it's hard to make gains because you're already kind of up there. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely true. So where can people see you speak? You know, I don't think I have anything coming up. The last couple of years, I focused on speaking and, and going to as many events as possible. Mm-hmm. But now with Nutrinic, it's been my focus has been here mm-hmm. um, and trying to do this. So, man, I don't think I have anything coming up at all. I spoke at two conferences in the spring because I, I enjoy speaking to you know other health professionals about mm-hmm. this. And one was the Plant Based Prevention of Disease Conference, mm-hmm. which I'm on the board for. So it's fun to put that on as well. And then today's diet 
Dietitian, which uh, puts on a conference, and it's the second biggest conference of dietitians. And I was really honored because they invited me to speak about how to counsel vegans. Oh, wow. Which was cool. And I had 300 dietitians come to my talk, you know, and I had a full 90 minutes, which is incredible. A lot of times you have 40 minutes. And so they were like, here's 90 minutes to talk about this topic that's just near and dear to me personally and professionally. And so that was super cool. And I got a lot of feedback and just people were really happy to get the information and learn about all this stuff. So that was really cool. But I don't think I have anything coming up, which is kind of shocking. Oh, it's good that you can actually spend time at home, too, like working on your business. And if people want to come to Nutrinic, is it only for pre-diabetics or is there other things that you can treat people for there? So right now it's set up that, you know, if you go to Nutrinic.com, you can make an appointment, you know, and you can see me once or you can see me three times in person or over video. And we do talk to a lot of vegans and a lot of people who just know who I am, who Mm -hmm. say, hey, you know, I've been eating this way. I'm not sure I'm doing it right. I want to make sure I'm being as healthy as possible. What kind of changes do I need to make and what can I do? And I help a lot of people that way. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So anyone can sign up and do a private consultation with me for sure. Oh, that's such a powerful resource for a lot of our listeners because I get emails from people saying, am I doing this right? And I'm not Mm -hmm. an expert. I've done my own research, but I'm not a dietitian. So it's really helpful to know that people can contact you and book a chat where they can talk about that. And you don't have to have a disease to come and just optimize your diet. Right. Absolutely. It's a privilege for me because most people who seek me out and make an appointment in the right direction. You know, and they just need a little bit of tweaking, a little bit of education, just, you know, some new ideas and whatnot, and I can send them off on their way. So it's a good experience for me, too. Cool. So what would you say to people who maybe they listen to this conversation and they thought, you know what, like, I want to give this a try. I want to try to become a eat a plant based diet or a vegan diet. What would you say is step one and step two for them? Look at what you're doing now. What fruits and vegetables do you already eat? Which ones do you already like? You know, start there. We don't need to make these radical changes. It's like, do you like to have stir fry, right? Which vegetables do you put in your stir fry? Keep making that same stir fry and find something to replace the meat with. You know, and that can be tofu, it can be tempeh, it can be some store-bought vegan chicken, which is fine. It's not a health food, but it has protein in it. And it gives that taste that we want as long as there are other actual vegetables in there. And look at how you can do that. And look how you can just incorporate eating more fruits and more vegetables and more beans into your diet. You know, are you eating oatmeal? And maybe it's just like one of those quick, like sugary packets. Could you make oatmeal with frozen blueberries, right? And a little bit of walnuts and maybe make it with almond milk. And you can make these changes that way. It doesn't need to be this huge radical departure from what you're already doing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because a lot of times people are intimidated by like, what is nutritional yeast or I have to actually make my own sauce and that's a huge Mm -hmm. barrier. So that's a really good point. Like that's actually not something I thought of. (laughs) Yeah. And my second, you know, maybe second and third bits of advice here are you have to make it your own. And you have to find the like blog or person or website or cookbook that speaks to you. Because people will say, hey, my cousin wants to go vegan. What's the best cookbook? It's like, well, I don't know your cousin. Is your cousin like an executive chef or is your cousin like doesn't know how to make ramen noodles? It's like culturally, you know, what speaks to you. And that can really help, you know, because you can make it your own. Because what I see a lot of vegans doing is saying, this is what worked for me. You need to do exactly this. And that's not the way it works. (laughs) Right. You know, and then my third bit of advice is 
you can eat canned food, you can eat frozen food, you can eat non-organic food, like you can do these things and be healthy. You know, we should be concerned about where our food comes from and how it's grown. Absolutely. But those are different topics. And I, I think that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah, because it can be very labor intensive to make some of these vegan meals if you're sourcing out it or sourcing out the ingredients and then chopping them like it does take time so if you don't enjoy that it's really nice for people to know that yeah like you can eat frozen stuff or out of a can as long as it's not like well i'm putting my own um spin on this so you have to correct me if i'm wrong (laughs) but you know if you're just buying like processed frozen food and eating it that's different than buying like frozen broccoli or peas Right. Yeah. When I say frozen, I mean like frozen vegetables, you know, that you can buy frozen broccoli and and the nutrition is really, really close to fresh broccoli. It's already cut. And it's funny when people like are selectively cheap, you know, and they're like, oh, it costs a a dollar more. And oh, this is so (laughs) expensive. And then they go out to eat and they order an appetizer and a drink and a dessert and they spend $25 extra on one meal (laughs) when they don't want to spend an extra dollar on frozen vegetables. You know, it's like, come on. And you can do it. And it can be sometimes you're using just canned and frozen. And sometimes you do a a, like semi prepared, maybe you cut your vegetables, but you use canned, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And it's mostly about having a plan, Mm -hmm. right? And making sure that plan is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Because if you get home from work, and you're exhausted, and you're starving, you're not set up to like, oh, well, now I'm going to make a vegan meal out of this cookbook that I'm opening for the first time. It's like, no, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) <laughs> so true. I love that. Well, you know? thank, yeah, thanks so much for your time. And I think there's some really great information for people. Uh, where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? So Nutrinic.com is the business website. And my um, almost all my social media is just my name, Matt Resigno. So it's like Twitter, Instagram, all that Facebook, and uh, people can find me there. Yeah, and they can also follow your adventures. And I love how on Instagram, it says hip hop. Uh, <laughs> yep, hip hop was very influential to me, and uh, it's funny. I just grew up right at that age, you know, where where I'm really fortunate to have been influenced by it. Well, thanks for your down to earth approach on plant based nutrition, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Matt's a super cool dude. It was really fun talking to him and I'm excited to continue watching his adventures on all of his social media channels. It's also really great to know that he's a resource out there for people not only who are fighting diseases but who are just simply interested in optimizing their plant-based diet and he's available to have video chats and consultations about being your healthiest self. I also really liked his advice on how to be mindful about eating and also that you actually need to chew your beans. And I think maybe a lot of us are guilty of not chewing our food. Thank you to those of you who are contributing on Patreon. And for those of you who don't know what Patreon is, I didn't know what Patreon was until I started listening to podcasts. It's a site where you can contribute to the show in a financial way starting at just $3. And you can find that in the show notes. The cool thing about partnering with the show is knowing that it makes a big difference. I get emails from people all the time telling me how the show brings value to their lives and that makes me feel good because my purpose, the reason that I get up in the morning is because I want to help make the world a better place and I really believe that this show contributes to that purpose. Another way you can support the show is to go to the shop tab on my website. 
I am developing products every day and there's gonna be new stuff coming up there. So the proceeds of that also go to supporting the show to keep it going and to keep improving it. And those products are super fun. Things like fun water bottles, socks, stem caps. There's gonna be hoodies and hats and all kinds of good stuff. And the products aren't just for cyclists. They're just really fun and you can get them for anybody you want. I'm just finishing up my race in Colombia. I can't wait to come back and tell you guys all about it. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of crazy stories because it was around 300 miles and over 52,000 feet of climbing at elevation. So there's definitely gonna be some adventures there. I've actually never been to Colombia before, so I'm pretty excited about this trip. South America is one of my favorite continents to go. I've been to Chile and Argentina and Brazil, and the people are always so welcoming and so warm and so animated. And I kind of feel like I've found my people whenever I show up in South America because my energy isn't too much for them. And sometimes I kind of scare people who are a little bit more reserved. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for the reviews you left on iTunes. I read all of them and for sharing the show on social media and beyond with your friends and family. Wishing you all the best success in your training and your adventures. 